Despite their frightening and violent nature, pirates have been somewhat romanticized since at least the 19th century, when Scottish writer Robert Louis Stevenson penned one of the greatest adventure novels ever written, Treasure Island. The story has all the trimmings of what have become the classic pirate tropes, including an old map, a hidden treasure, and a cast of salty old sea dogs hell-bent on finding said treasure, no matter the cost. The novel's main antagonist, Long John Silver, is considered by many to be the quintessential pirate archetype, and indeed has gone on to inspire several other characters in the same vein. From Captain Hook and J.M. Barry's Peter Pan to Johnny Depp's lovable antihero Jack Sparrow in Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. While each of these characters have become iconic in their own right, they're still a far cry from the actual flesh-and-blood figures from what's become known as the Golden Age of Piracy. Between 1650 and 1730, these rogues ruled the seas, interrupting trade and commerce from the British colonies on the east coast of America to the ports of India and Southeast Asia. Of all the legendary figures to emerge from that unprecedented period, however, perhaps none was as infamous, notorious, and fearsome as Edward Teach, who is perhaps better known by his given name, Blackbeard. From mysterious origins, he rose to prominence in the late 17th century, and, by the early 18th century, had become the scourge of the Caribbean as well as the eastern seaboard of British America. But just who exactly was this man? How did he earn his infamous moniker? And what led to his swift demise? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. To understand Blackbeard's rise to prominence, one must contextualize the world in which he thrived and dominated. The era known as the Golden Age of Piracy coincided with both the Age of Exploration and the rise of colonialism. This was no accident, as it was during this time that European exploratory and merchant ships were being sent all over the world in the hopes of finding and conquering new lands, as well as establishing trade and commerce with other distant, far-flung nations. As to be expected, the aforementioned ships returned with the spoils of the places they'd vanquished and or contacted. Weighed down by ivory, gold, rubies, and other practical and luxury goods, those who had taken to life on the high seas saw the opportunity to help relieve these ships of the burden of their precious cargoes, thus giving rise to piracy. Operating outside the laws of the places from whence they'd come, the pirates would first commandeer a ship from poor, hapless individuals, then form a crew of other rogues in order to more easily and readily plunder unsuspecting cargo and merchant vessels. The hierarchy on a pirate ship was surprisingly democratic. They lived by a code in which everyone on board was allotted their fair share of the loot, but also held to a standard of respect for one another, and even offered compensation to their ill or wounded brethren. It was against this backdrop that the subject of today's episode ascended from obscure beginnings to the ranks of the most nefarious and fearsome figures not just of the day, but in the whole of history. The man who would become Blackbeard was born Edward Teach, presumably in Bristol, then the second largest city in England sometime around 1680. The little is known of his early life, it's believed that he served as a sailor on privateer ships, that is, those private vessels commissioned to engage in maritime warfare, during Queen Anne's War, which raged for eleven years between 1702 and 1713 in and around Britain's colonies in America. Historians generally agree that he was literate, leading some to believe that he may have come from an affluent family, though this remains purely speculative. What is known, however, is that sometime in the early 1710s, he relocated from Jamaica, the reason for his being there unknown, to the island of New Providence in what's now the Bahamas. The island at the time was the equivalent of a frontier town in the days of the Wild West, far enough away from the mother country, 
England, of which the Bahamas became a subject in 1648 to be properly policed, New Providence came to be regarded as a place of refuge, a safe haven of sorts, amongst pirates and other seafaring scoundrels from which they could both operate and seek shelter from their various criminal activities. So it was, around 1715, that Teach first met Captain Benjamin Hornigold, a pirate of considerable renown at the time, on the island of New Providence, and was recruited onto his crew. So began Edward Teach's brief, albeit enduring, career as a pirate. Under Hornigold's leadership, Teach quickly ascended to the ranks of Master Buccaneer. In 1716, the captain placed him in charge of a sloop they had taken over, and allowed him to oversee part of the crew. A year later, they captured two cargo ships, one out of Cuba carrying 120 barrels of flour, and another out of Bermuda with 100 barrels of wine. Just days later, they struck once again, this time claiming the cargo of a ship bound for Charlestown, now Charleston, South Carolina, from Madeira in the North Atlantic. It was during these sprees with Hornigold and his crew that the first mention of Teach was reported by one Matthew Month, the captain of an anti-pirate patrol for the colony of North Carolina. Referred to as Thatch by Month, Teach was described as, quote, operating a sloop of six guns and about 70 men, unquote. In September of that same year, Teach and Hornigold encountered another pirate, Steed Bonnet, a landowner and former military officer from Barbados, and merged their crew with his, forming an alliance three ships long with well over a hundred men. A month later, yet another ship was added to this mini armada, and the pair became the scourge of the Atlantic coast and the Caribbean. But a rift between Captain Hornigold and his crew grew ever more apparent by the end of 1717. From the start, his primary objective had been to target the ships of his enemies. As he was a former British privateer, he specifically went in pursuit of those vessels that served under the British flag. For his crew members, though, the desire to pillage any and all cargo and merchant ships they came across became too great, and he was quickly demoted. Whether Teach had any say or sway in the matter is unknown. But, by early November, Hornigold had decided to retire from piracy altogether. Taking two of the ships and his makeshift fleet with him, he returned to New Providence, and in June 1718 accepted a royal pardon from the King of Britain. Teach and Hornigold never saw each other again, but the former was well on his way to becoming the legendary figure he was meant to be. Assuming leadership and possession over Hornigold's crew and the two remaining ships respectively, Teach leapt into action. On November 28th, they encountered a French Guinea man, or slave ship, so named for the slave trade that was based in the West African nation of Guinea at the time, just off the coast of St. Vincent in the Caribbean. The ship, La Concorde, was fired upon on Teach's command, killing a good portion of her crew and forcing her captain to surrender. Once they seized control of the vessel, they sailed south to Bequia, an island in what's now the Grenadines, where they marooned her captain and her surviving crew members and set about repurposing the conquered ship for their own needs. Teach, however, gave the smaller of his own two ships to the stranded crew, which they reluctantly accepted, and set sail for Martinique. Fitting La Concorde with forty guns, Teach renamed her Queen Anne's Revenge, and placed a crewman dubbed Lieutenant Richards in charge of his other vessel. What followed was a series of clashes with various merchant ships, the amount and ferocity of which no pirate had undertaken before. By December 1717, word of Teach's maritime conquests had reached as far north as the Massachusetts colony, where the Boston Newsletter reported that he was, quote, the commander of a French ship of 32 guns, a brigantine of 10 guns, and a sloop of 12 guns, unquote. It remains uncertain just where and how he had obtained the 10-gun brigantine, but historians believe that, by the time the article was written, he was in command of over 150 crew members split between three ships. 
Then, on December 5th, Teach and his crew had a fateful run-in with the sloop Margaret off the coast of Anguilla, the northernmost island of the British-owned Leeward Islands. Her captain, Henry Bostock, and his crew were held captive for eight hours as they watched Teach and his fellow pirates ransack the entire ship. Once they were through, Bostock and his men were replaced, unharmed, on the Margaret and allowed to leave. It was when Bostock returned to his base of operations on St. Kitts, however, that history was given its first account of the man who would be known ever after as Blackbeard. In a deposition requested by St. Kitts's then-governor, Walter Hamilton, Bostock described Teach as, quote, a tall, spare man with a very black beard which he wore very long, end quote. While it was Bostock who gave us this first account, it was 18th-century British historian and journalist Charles Johnson to whom the actual moniker is attributed. In his 1724 book, A General History of the Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates, Johnson describes Teach as, quote, such a figure that imagination cannot form an idea of a fury from hell to look more frightful, and that Captain Teach assumed the cognomen of Blackbeard from that large quantity of hair, which, like a frightful meteor, covered his whole face, end quote. He elaborates upon this description, stating that, quote, Quote, this beard was black, which he suffered to grow of an extravagant length. As to breadth, it came up to his eyes. He was accustomed to twist it with ribbons and small tails, and turn them about his ears. End quote. The authenticity of Johnson's descriptions continues to be debated among historians, but it's clear that, based upon his and Bostock's accounts, that Teach understood the importance of one's image and instilling fear within the hearts and minds of his enemies would undoubtedly have been one of his primary aims. Teach's movements and whereabouts in the early months of 1718 remain unaccounted for to this day. Around March of that year, however, he expanded his fleet once again when he invited the captain and crew of a Jamaican log-cutting sloop to join his makeshift armada. They accepted, and the entire flotilla set sail for the Bay of Honduras just east of present-day Belize, where Teach acquired an additional five vessels. By May, he had promoted himself to the rank of Commodore, a high naval rank above captain but below rear admiral, and set his sights on the mainland of British America. He began by setting up a blockade of Charlestown, now Charleston, South Carolina, in which all vessels entering or leaving the port were halted. Over the next six days, a total of nine ships were looted as they attempted to navigate around Teach's fleet, which was anchored at Charlestown Bar, a series of submerged shoals located eight miles, 13 kilometers southeast of the city. One of these ships, the Crowley, bound for London, was stopped, and its passengers, including a member of the Council of the Colony of South Carolina named Samuel Ragg, were taken prisoner. During this time, Teach negotiated with Ragg, requesting medical supplies for his crew. Ragg acquiesced, and he, along with two of Teach's pirates, rode to shore to gather the supplies. Four days later, they returned with the goods. Satisfied, Teach released the prisoners back to the Crowley, albeit relieved of their cargo, and sailed away. Shortly after the Charlestown incident, Teach received word that a fleet of British warships had departed from England with orders to drive pirates out of the Caribbean, the West Indies in particular. He ordered his fleet to sail north to Beaufort Inlet off the coast of North Carolina. There, two of his ships, including the Queen Anne's Revenge, suffered irreparable damage when they collided with sandbars. While stranded there, he became aware of royal pardons that were being issued to pirates who were willing to turn themselves in and forego their wicked ways. He and his crewmate, the former captain, Steed Bonnet, were willing to do so, but Bonnet departed first in a small sailing vessel. Bonnet made for Bathtown in North Carolina, where he surrendered to Governor Charles Eden and received his pardon. Upon returning to Beaufort Inlet to collect his crewmates and former ship, he discovered that Teach had ransacked it of its goods and marooned its crew. Furious, he swore revenge, but unable to locate Teach, instead returned to piracy, only to be captured on September 27th of that year. He and all but four of his crew were tried and ultimately hanged. Meanwhile, Teach sailed even further up the North Carolina coastline and his remaining vessel to a place called Ocracoke Inlet, where he marooned 25 of his own crew members on a tiny island three and a half miles, 5.7 kilometers from the mainland. 
He then proceeded up to Bathtown, the same place Bonnet had visited a short time before, and accepted his own pardon from Governor Eden. Opting to settle in Bathtown, Teach was given permission to embark to St. Thomas to seek commission as a privateer. He was also given official title to his last remaining sloop, which he renamed the Adventure. It would seem that he had come full circle from his humble origins and submitted himself to a simple life amongst the colonists in North Carolina. But the call of the sea and the promise of its plunder were too great for Teach. By late August he had returned to piracy. He took down two French merchant ships, looting both and stealing one back to his base of operations on Ocracoke Island. It was here that he would spend his remaining days, favoring its vantage point and prime location between British America's northeast colonies and the Caribbean. It also attracted such notorious figures as Charles Vane, Israel Hands, Calico Jack, and Robert Deal, with whom Teach spent many nights of amicable drinking. Teach's presence and exploits along the eastern seaboard concerned many colonial officials, most notably the governor of Pennsylvania. He sent out two sloops to search in vain for Teach and his pirate cohorts, but to no avail. When Alexander Spotswood, the governor of Virginia, tried his hand at their capture, however, he pulled out all the stops to ensure that no further acts of piracy would disrupt and terrorize colonial affairs. Spotswood's approach was almost totalitarian, to say the least. Acting under direct authority and orders from the British Crown, he sent out warrants for the arrest of all former pirates in Virginia to inquire after Teach. His whereabouts. This bore little fruit until he came in contact with one William Howard, who had served for a time under Teach's quartermaster aboard the Queen Anne's Revenge. After a brief but fierce legal battle between Howard and Spotswood, in which the former accused the governor of wrongful arrest and imprisonment, Spotswood was able to obtain valuable information. Through Howard, he learned that Teach was anchored at Ocracoke Island. Personally funding the venture, he hired the captains of the HMS Pearl and HMS Lime, Gordon and Brand, respectively, to travel overland into North Carolina to Bathtown, while Lieutenant Robert Robert Maynard, also of the HMS Pearl, was ordered to approach the town by sea with two commandeered sloops, the Jane and the Ranger. No doubt driven in part by the hefty reward offered by the Assembly of Virginia, Maynard and his forces set sail on November 17th, while Gordon and Brand disembarked six days later, both arriving within three miles, five kilometers of Bathtown on November 23rd. It was just after sunset on the evening of November 21st that Maynard found Teach and his pirate comrades anchored at Ocracoke Island. He had learned of their exact location from ships he'd stopped on the way over. Unfamiliar with the surroundings and terrain, he decided to wait until the following morning to carry out his attack. Stopping all incoming traffic so as not to give away his position, he posted lookouts on both the Jane and the Ranger to ensure that Teach couldn't escape to sea. Teach, whose guard was down due to his entertaining his cohorts, hadn't thought to set a lookout. The trap was set. At daybreak the following morning, Maynard and his forces sprang into action. The two sloops were quickly spotted by Teach and his crew, who immediately took to the adventure's deck. After a series of skillful maneuvers, the Jane and Ranger and the adventure exchanged small arms fire before Teach commanded his crew to cannon blast Maynard's sloops. The result was devastating. Twenty of Maynard's men on the Jane were either incapacitated or dead, while nine had suffered a similar fate on the Ranger. Soon all three vessels inched dangerously closer and closer to one another. The lieutenant, who had kept a sizable portion of his men below deck in anticipation of hand-to-hand -hand combat, warned his men to be at the ready. Within minutes, the adventure's grappling hooks found their way onto the Jane's severely damaged deck. Teach and his crew climbed aboard, but were surprised and overwhelmed by Maynard's forces, who kept coming in droves from the sloop's hold. In the scuffle, the lieutenant and the pirate exchanged gunfire from their flintlocks before tossing them aside, thus resorting to their cutlasses. What ensued was a swashbuckling sword fight of epic proportions, Teach seemingly gaining the literal upper hand 
Shan managed to destroy Maynard's sword, but, in the melee, had been isolated from his crew. Thinking quickly, one of the lieutenant's men drew his own sword and slashed Teach's neck. Severely wounded, he was surrounded and virtually hacked to death by Maynard's forces. Those pirates still alive quickly surrendered and were taken prisoner aboard the Ranger. As for Teach, his body was tossed overboard into the waters of the inlet, but not before Maynard cut off his head and proudly displayed it on the Jane's bowsprit. In the days that followed, Teach's loop was auctioned off for the price of 2,238 pounds sterling, an exorbitant amount at the time. His crew members were taken back to Virginia, where they were jailed on charges of piracy. At long last, the man who'd come to be known as Blackbeard was no more. It was William Shakespeare who said, These violent delights have violent ends, and they're words that certainly ring true for Edward Teach. His nefarious exploits up and down British America's Atlantic coast as well as the Caribbean were as wicked and vicious as they come, and, ultimately, the consequences of his actions finally caught up with him. As such, history has naturally painted him in quite a negative light, but perhaps he would have liked to be remembered in such a way. His legacy has outlived him, certainly all the way to our modern era, and it shows no signs of stopping. From Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island to Disney Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, a part of Edward Teach continues to live on. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear and would like to support this podcast to ensure continued content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just go to anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. There are monthly support plans in three different tiers. Any and all help counts and is greatly appreciated. And be sure to tune in next Thursday and every Thursday for a brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.